listening to Seves Escucha, Seen and Heard, a language justice podcast for interpreters, community organizers, and everyone else who has a relationship to language. I'm Andrea. And I'm Ada. We're here at the studios of 103.3 Asheville FM in Asheville, North Carolina, with our compas Manuel and Leonel. And today, we want to welcome a very special guest, Tamiko Ambrose Murray. Hi. <laughs> um, I'm so happy to be here, and thank you for calling me special. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so we wanted to share a little bit about um, some of the work that we've all done together. Ada, Tomiko, and I all work for the Center for Participatory Change, and CPC's work is intersectional. And so for the past several years, we have been uh, trying to figure out how do we expand language justice work to not be so isolated from the rest of the work mm-hmm. and to understand all what language justice is, that it's more than interpretation that it's more than English and Spanish. Um, and Tomiko has been a really important part of that work in helping us kind of craft this new vision. And one of the ways we did that was we went on a language justice listening tour around Western North Carolina, um, which really um, led us to look at language justice really differently. And we're going to talk about some of that today. Awesome. Tomiko, will you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I um, am a mother of two giant people um, (laughs) who are adults now, uh, son and daughter. I am a writer and I co-founded Asheville Writers in the Schools and Community and our um, really awesome, amazing uh, online youth magazine. It's uh, actually an online arts and culture magazine that is bilingual and is run staffed by youth of color in Asheville. Nice. And what is your relationship with language? Well, so one thing I did not say is that I'm the co-coordinator of CPC's Racial Equity Circle. And I think that I was first exposed to language justice when I started building a relationship with CPC. And I think that through through that, I, for the first time in my life, was able to have grow deep relationships with people who did not speak English and I didn't speak uh, Spanish. And so that was a really uh, impactful thing for me. Can you tell us a little more, like how has, how has your lens shifted or grown um, both within CPC and then how have you brought that kind of out into your other work? Yeah, definitely. So I think that uh, the first year of Word on the Street, we put out the applications for young people to apply to be part of it. And there were two youth who were primarily monolingual Spanish speakers. And we thought, wow, I don't know if we're ready for Mm this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And um I'm so, so, so grateful for that journey of what we learned that year. And I think that it helped to expand my analysis of, of race, <laughs> uh, of racism, of uh, how language is like my own relationship to language, mm-hmm. what it means to, you know, the consequences of having a tongue that has been colonized. And I think that just, it continues to grow or deepen. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's probably a place that I 
will ever arrive at that. Oh, no, now I know everything. (laughs) But it's this journey that uh, I think has really not only impacted my work in the world, but it's also impacted me. Mm -hmm. I've heard you talk uh, before about like growing up and your relationship with language and your relationship with English. Will you share a little bit uh, with us about that? Yeah, definitely. So uh, my ancestors are the ancestors that I know Uh were uh, they lived in Florida, Central Florida, Winter Park, which they called Black Winter Park, Eatonville. And we don't have very many relatives who still live in that area. But something about that community is uh, primarily, you know, you know, back in those days when my great grandmother was alive and working, she did day work and she did day work for the white people who lived on the other side of the the tracks. And I think that what my great grandmother learned through her experience about access and about access to privilege and about access to opportunity was so much tied to the way people communicated, mm-hmm. the way they spoke. And so my grandmother, I think my grandmother and my great aunt, as they were growing up, were corrected for their English all the time. And uh, my mom and uncles, and so we're all products of that, of that uh you know, view of the world, that uh, view that we need to assimilate, assimilate our tongues um, in order to have access to opportunity. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that, you know, I grew up in Chicago originally, um, but I've been in Asheville for longer than I've been anywhere, over 20 years. But growing up in Chicago, I always uh, spoke the way I speak now, which is the King's English or what they call proper English. And really what's so interesting is that, you know, in my bloodline, like there is really just such a beautiful rhythmic tongue that is uh, like poetry. And so in a lot of ways, I have felt like I was like that was taken from me. Of course, I know how to code switch and be, you know, in different spaces, but yeah, it's something that I think really had a deep impact on me growing up. And, and also, you know, people would tease me growing up, but they would say it was cute. Mm-hmm. They'd be like, oh, you talk so proper, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, but then as I got older, I've actually had people tell me that when I first heard you talk, I didn't trust you. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's been a journey. That is mm-hmm. a, a journey and a healing journey that um. I've been on for a long time. I mean, I think this this theme of, well, you know, to do intersectional work and to be working at bringing communities together, this theme around um, people in communities who have experienced this pain around loss mm-hmm. of language mm-hmm. and working together with people who are actively uh, working to hold on to language and this was part of what we were starting to see that we were not um, holding well as language justice workers, that we were kind of ignoring and invisibilizing experiences of people who had experienced loss of language. Um, and so I think that was one of the 
the learnings, it wasn't even yet a learning, it was like a noticing, something that we were starting to be able to name that prompted us to do this language justice tour because we realized that there were so many stories that we were not hearing around language. And so they weren't part of the analysis that was shaping the work. Mm-hmm. I wonder if, um, you know, both of you, Ad and Tomiko, could share a little bit about what was it like to listen to the stories that came out of the tour and then how did that shift CPC's language justice work? And how did it shift the way that we understand intersectional work? I mean, for me, there was like this huge turning point. And I think to specifically name black communities and black communities in Western North Carolina and and in the South and to have these conversations around like we all have this experience with language and that being a point of connection and that being a point of connection between maybe Spanish speaking immigrant people and English only um, speaking black people um, and where it had been a point of like maybe friction when we really started to like dive into it and to be like, I was bullied for the way that I spoke or I was told I was cute. I was by the way that I spoke. I spoke a certain way with these group of people and a certain way with this other group of people. Um, Part of my family speaks like this. Part of my family speaks like that. And the more we got into it, I think the more for me, there were those connections. And I think that we have done a better job since then to be able to include more people in language justice or not so much like include people in the language justice movement, but to reflect kind of people's experiences with language. And that, again, is not just about interpreters and about Spanish English or about immigrants, um, but that this relationship with language goes so deep. So I think that some of my big takeaways, dittoing everything that you said, but I think the language justice tour, being part of that process and hearing different people's perspectives, hearing uh, Black people talk about how their you know, grandmother spoke Gullah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and how, how they feel that loss of not being able to speak that language mm-hmm. and then experiences that parallel to mine and the... Uh, uh, the code switching that we have to do to be in different spaces and communicate with different people. Things that I don't always think about. Yeah, I don't always think about, but just do. <laughs> and I think that one thing that came out um, in, you know, look, listening to all the voices and hearing all the, reading all the interviews is that anti-blackness is like a global thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that and I think that that theme kept coming up again and again um regardless of whether people were born in the US or they were born in Central or South America or Mexico that it was something that just kept coming up and and I think that has impacted me in so many different ways. I think as as community interpreters and as language justice interpreters um we put a lot of value into the interpreter spiel or the introduction, right? So this is your time to maybe go in front of the room, go in front of the gathering and say, hi, everybody, we're the interpreters. This is the interpretation equipment. This is how it works. And kind of like do that introduction so that everybody knows what's happening in the room. And unintentionally, and I think like, you know, un- unintentionally, um, 
there was a lot of anti-blackness in that introduction because we would come up to the front of the room, we would say, we want people to be able to uh, speak in the language that their ancestors spoke. And without thinking about it, we had just alienated a lot of people in the room and had shut people down and say, and, and instead of them wanting to be part of this conversation with us, it was be like, you know, this is where the expletive check mark gets, <laughs> gets checked off on the iTunes box, but you know, like, fuck you. Like, I don't want to hear any anymore. And I think through this, the last couple of years, we've been trying to do a better job about going to the front of the room and saying this, hi, we're the interpreters. This is the interpretation equipment because of reasons of slavery, colonialism, assimilation. Many of us don't have connections to these ancestral languages. We invite you to still be a part of this with us. We invite your Southern English. We invite your African-American vernacular English. We invite your accents. Like we invite all of this and have been trying to do a better job about kind of um, doing that at the beginning um, of, of our introduction. So that's just kind of like a concrete way how I've seen our, our work shift. Yeah. So I would say first that I think that when I first came to language justice spaces, I noticed that different interpreters gave mm. different mm-hmm. spiels mm-hmm. and there was not, um, yeah. And it, they were all different. <laughs> um, and I think that one of the positive impacts of the language justice tour is that I think there's a more unified, more, there's more analysis brought mm-hmm. into what is said at the front of the room and like really I think there's an effort to try to reach people extend this invitation to people even if they have different experiences so there's an attempt to speak to different people's experiences Mm -hmm. in that moment because it really is an important moment because I will just say honestly I mean it's not especially fun to wear headphones Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. (laughs) and so it's an (laughs) it's an invitation for people to share the the labor mm-hmm. because it, it is labor. It's, it's work. People don't have to say yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes yeah. mm-hmm. if the invitation isn't extended in a way that feels good to someone, mm-hmm. then they could turn it down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that can look like not putting on headphones mm-hmm. and um, just kind of checking out. But I think that for me, what has been really beautiful is to, to hear you all really speak to my experience in the front of the room and to acknowledge that I have no access whatsoever to the tongue that my ancestors spoke. And that's deep to have someone very intentionally think through what they're going to say in extending that invitation to speak to that experience. Because I think for you know, quite a while or a long time, I think I knew I felt funny, but I didn't have the the language to express it. I just knew something felt like, mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm. I think with the spiel that sometimes there's a little bit of a challenge if you don't know the participants mm-hmm. yeah. in giving a spiel that can meet them where they're at. Mm-hmm. So I think for example, with um, mm-hmm. this group, some of them have been like learning mm-hmm. and building analysis for the last two years. 
And then there's some people who are, you know, brand new to a conversation about race and racism, even though they have their lived experience. And so I think that coming into a room with the spiel that like kind of flies over someone's head because mm-hmm. they can't hear you mm-hmm. is something that I think is just a, probably an ongoing challenge, but mm-hmm. that to really think about how to meet people mm-hmm. where they're at. And so maybe there isn't necessarily necessarily a cookie cutter. Uh-huh. Yeah. This uh-huh. is the spiel uh-huh. you give, but Listen that it's... <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's something we've talked about is could we shift the way that we even do it so that rather than the two interpreters standing yeah. up front, yeah. that it's the facilitators. Yeah. And maybe the facilitators working with the interpreters or the organizers or whoever it is that's kind of convening the space and that knows the people in the space to kind of take that time to check in and maybe share that, that labor, like you said, of crafting the space together in a way that's going to be meaningful. I think it's really, really important to continue building analysis around race and racism and gender and whatever else. Mm. (laughs) Um, Because I don't think that language justice is stagnant. Mm -hmm. I think it's constantly moving and Mm -hmm. shifting. Thank you so much, Tamiko. Um, Thank you so much for being here. And thank you so much for teaching us. Uh, so much along this journey and uh, also learning with us along this language justice journey. So I want to say gracias. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm just so, so grateful to you all because um, language justice is a gift that has really, really deepened. I mean, touched me in a really deep way um, in many ways. And yeah, I love you all. Oh, my gosh. I love you, too. Besitos. <laughs> thanks to Tamiko thanks to the studios of 103.3 Asheville FM WSFM LP in Asheville North Carolina follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Seves Escucha or on Twitter at SVSE Podcast and please email us at svsepodcast at gmail.com. If you have questions about language justice, what to do when you're interpreting X, Y, or Z, the role of the interpreter, the role of the interpreter when the interpreter is also an organizer, let us know because we're hoping for the last episode of the season. We want to answer like your listener letters. So please send us your emails. So on behalf of Manuel de la Luz of Mente Visual Films, Leonel Gutierrez of GBD Productions, and Andrea Golden and Ala Volkmer of the Center for Participatory Change. Thank you so much for listening. This episode is produced by Mente Visual Films and GBD Productions. Music by Combo Chimbita. Adios. Adios.